0: Chapter Thirty One through Thirty Two of History of Rome, from the Earliest Times down to Four Seventy Six A.D., by Robert F. Pennell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Richardson. Chapter Thirty One, Clodius and Milo, Death of Crassus. During the nine years fifty-nine to fifty. Passed by Caesar in Gaul, great confusion prevailed at Rome. The Republic needed a strong, firm hand which would stop the shedding of blood and ensure security of person and property. Pompey had attempted to bring about this result, but had failed. There were two prominent factions, one led by Clodius and the other by Milo. Claudius is the most extraordinary figure in this extraordinary period. He had no character. He had no distinguished talent save for speech. He had no policy. He was ready to adopt any cause or person, which for the moment was convenient to him. And yet, for five years, this man was the leader of the Roman mob. He could defy justice, insult the councils, beat the tribunes, parade the streets with a gang of armed slaves, killing persons disagreeable to him. And in the Senate itself he had high friends and connections, who threw a shield over him when his audacity had gone beyond endurance. Milo was as disreputable as Clodius. His chief fame had been gained in the schools of the gladiators. Gangs of armed slaves accompanied him everywhere, and there were constant collisions between his retainers and those of Clodius. In 57, consuls were elected who favored Cicero, and his recall was demanded. Clodius and his followers opposed the recall. The nobles, led by their tool Milo, pressed it. Day after day the opposing parties met in bloody arrays. For seven months the brawl continued. Till Milo's party finally got the ascendancy, the assembly was convened and the recall voted. For seventeen months Cicero had been in Greece, lamenting his hard lot. He landed at Brundisium on August 5, 57, and proceeded to Rome. Outside the city, all men of note except his avowed enemies were waiting to receive him. The Senate voted to restore his property and to rebuild his palace on the Palatine Hill, and his other villas at the public expense. But Clodius, with his bands of ruffians, interrupted the workmen engaged in the repair of his Palatine house, broke down the walls, and, attacking Cicero himself, nearly murdered him. At last, Clodius even attempted to burn the house of Milo. The long struggle between these two ruffians culminated when Milo was a candidate for the consulship and Clodius for the praetorship. The two meeting by accident in the Via Appia at Bavile. Clodius was murdered. 20 January 52. This act of violence strengthened Pompey, who was nominated sole consul. Milo was impeached. His guilt was evident and he went into exile at Massilia. Cicero prepared an elaborate speech in his defense, but did not dare to deliver it. During the interval between the two campaigns of 57 and 56, Caesar renewed his alliance with his two colleagues in interviews that were held at Ravenna and Lucca. He retained the command of Gaul, Pompey that of Spain, Crassus that of Syria. Crassus now undertook the war against the Parthians. He was accompanied by his son, who had done good service under Caesar in Gaul. They arrived at Zugma, a city of Syria, on the Euphrates and the Romans, seven legions strong with four thousand cavalry, drew themselves up along the river. The quaestor Cassius, a man of ability, proposed to Crassus a plan of the campaign which consisted in following the river as far as Seleucia in order not to be separated from his fleet and provisions and to avoid being surrounded by the cavalry of the enemy. But Crassus allowed himself to be deceived by an Arab chief who lured him to the sandy plains of Mesopotamia at Carhai. The forces of the Parthians, divided into many bodies, suddenly rushed upon the Roman ranks and drove them back. The young Crassus attempted a charge at the head of 1,500 horsemen. The Parthians yielded. But only to draw him into an ambush, where he perished after great deeds of valor. His head, carried on the end of a pike, was borne before the eyes of his unhappy father, who, crushed by grief and despair, gave command into the hands of Crassus. Crassus gave orders for a general retreat. The Parthians subjected the Roman army to continual losses and Crassus himself was killed in a conference in 53. In this disastrous campaign, there perished more than 20,000 Romans. 10,000 were taken prisoners and compelled to serve as slaves in the army of the Parthians. The death of Crassus broke the triumvirate, that of Julia in 54, had sundered the family ties between caesar and pompey who married cornelia the widow of the young crassus and daughter of metellus scipio chapter thirty two caesar's struggle with pompey battle of pharsala pompey was elected sole consul in february fifty two he at once threw off all pretense of an alliance with caesar and devoted himself to the interests of the senate and aristocracy. The brilliant successes of Caesar in Gaul had made a profound impression upon the minds of the citizens to whom the name of the northern barbarians was still fraught with terror. Caesar had won for himself distinction as a soldier greater than the Scipios or Sulla or Pompey he was coming back to lay at his country's feet a province larger than spain not only subdued but reconciled and to subjugation a nation of warriors as much devoted to him as his own legions the nobility had watched his successes with bitter envy but they were forced to vote a thanksgiving of twenty days which the people made sixty Caesar now declared through his followers at Rome that he desired a second consulship, but he wished first to celebrate his triumph, and on this account would not disband his army, for according to the custom he could not triumph without it. According to another custom, however, he must disband it before he could offer himself as a candidate for consulship but he asked permission to set aside this custom and to become a candidate while he was in the province in command of the army. The law requiring a candidate to give up his command had been suspended several times before this, so that Caesar's request was reasonable. His enemies in the city were numerous and powerful, and he felt that if he returned as a private citizen, his personal safety would be in danger whereas if he were a magistrate, his person would be considered sacred. The Senate, on the other hand, felt that if he carried his point, the days of their influence were numbered. Their first step, therefore, was to weaken Caesar and to provide their champion, Pompey, with a force in Italy. They voted that Caesar should return to Pompey a legion which had been loaned him, and also should send another legion back to Italy. The vote was taken on the ostensible plea that the troops were needed in asia Minor against the Parthians. But when they reached Italy, they were placed under Pompey's command in Campania. The consuls chosen for the year 49 were both bitter enemies of Caesar. He had taken up his winter quarters at Ravenna, the last town in the province bordering on Italy. From here he sent a messenger with letters to the Senate stating that he was ready to resign his command if Pompey did the same. The message arrived at Rome January 1, 49, on the day in which the new consuls entered upon their duties. The letters were read in the Senate, and there followed a spirited discussion resulting in a decree that Caesar should resign his command. The tribunes opposed, but being threatened by the consuls, they were compelled to leave the city and went directly to Ravenna. When the action of the Senate was reported to Caesar, he called together his soldiers and addressed them thus, For nine years I and my army have served our country loyally and with some degree of success, he said. We have driven the Germans across the Rhine. We have made Gaul a province, and the Senate, for answer, has broken the Constitution in setting aside the tribunes who spoke in my defense. It has voted the state in danger." And has called Italy into arms when no single act of mine can justify it in this course. The soldiers became enthusiastic and were eager to follow their leader without pay. Contributions were offered him by both men and officers. Libienus, his trusted lieutenant, alone proved false he stole away and joined pompey caesar then sent for two legions from across the alps with these legions he crossed the rubicon into italy and marched to ariminum meanwhile the report of his movements reached rome the aristocracy had imagined that his courage would fail him or that his army would desert thoroughly frightened consuls praetors senators leaving wives children and property to their fate fled from the city to seek safety with pompey and capua they did not stop even to take the money from the treasury but left it locked caesar paused at ariminum and sent envoys to the senate stating that he was still desirous of peace if pompey would depart to his province in spain He would himself disband his own troops he was even willing to have a personal visit with pompey this message was received by the senate after its flight from rome the substance of its reply was that pompey did not wish to have a personal interview but would go to spain and that Caesar must leave Ariminum, return to his province, and give security that he would dismiss his army. These terms seemed to Caesar unfair, and he would not accept them. Accordingly, he sent his lieutenant, Mark Antony, across the mountains to Aritium on the road to Rome. He himself pushed on to Ancona before Pompey could stop him, The towns that were on his march threw open their gates. Their garrisons joined his army. Their officers fled. Steadily he advanced with constantly increasing forces until when he reached Corfinium, his army had swelled to 30,000 troops. This place had been occupied by Domitius with a party of aristocrats and a few thousand men. Caesar surrounded the town, and when Domitius endeavored to steal away, his own troops took him and delivered him over to Caesar. The capture of Corfinium and the desertion of its garrison filled Pompey and his followers with dismay. They hurried to Brundisium, where ships were in readiness for them to depart. Hoping to intercept Pompey, caesar hastened to this port on his arrival outside of the town the consuls with half the army had already gone pompey however was still within the place with twelve thousand troops waiting for transports to carry them away he refused to see caesar and though the latter endeavored to blockade the port he was unsuccessful owing to want of ships Thus Pompey escaped. With him were the consuls, more than half of the senate, and the aristocracy. Caesar would have followed them, but a fleet must first be obtained, and matters nearer home demanded his attention. In sixty days Caesar had made himself master of Italy. On his way to Rome he met Cicero and invited him to attend the senate, but he preferred to stay away. Caesar entered the city unattended and assembled the Senate through the tribunes, Mark Antony and Cassius Longinus. The attendance was small, as most of the members were with Pompey. In his address to the Senate, Caesar spoke of his own forbearance and concessions of their unjust demands and their violent suppression of the authority of the tribunes. He was still willing to send envoys to treat with Pompey, but no one was found willing to go. After three days spent in useless discussion, Caesar decided to act for himself. By his own edict, he restored the children of the victims of Sulla's proscription to their rights and property. The money in that treasury was voted him by the Assembly of the People, he took as much of it as he needed and started at once for Gaul to join his troops on his way to Spain. He had much to accomplish. Spain was in the hands of pompey's lieutenants Afranius, Petrius, and Varro, who had six legions and allied troops. From Sicily and Sardinia came most of the grain supplies of Rome, and it was important to hold these islands. To Sicily he sent Curio and Sardinia, Valerius. Cato, who was in charge of Sicily, immediately abandoned it and fled to Africa. Sardinia received Caesar's troops with open arms. Upon his arrival in Gaul, Caesar found that the inhabitants of Massilia had risen against his authority led by the same domitius whom he had sent away unharmed from corfinium caesar blockaded the city and leaving decimus brutus in charge of operations continued his journey to spain he found afranius and Petrius strongly entrenched in catalonia northern spain within forty days he brought them to terms and varro who was in southern spain was eager to surrender all spain was at his feet before leaving spain caesar summoned the leading spaniards and romans to cordova for a conference all promised obedience to his authority he then set sail from gadis and tarragona where he joined his legions and marched back to massilia which he found hard-pressed and ready to surrender the gates were opened all were pardoned and Domitius was allowed to escape a second time Caesar left a portion of his forces in Gaul and with the rest arrived at Rome in the early winter of 49 to 48 thus far he had been successful Gaul Spain Sardinia sicily and italy were his he had not succeeded however in getting together a naval force in the adriatic and he had lost his promising lieutenant curio who had been surprised and killed in africa whither he had gone in pursuit of cato and pompey's followers during caesar's absence affairs at rome had resumed their usual course. He had left the city under charge of his lieutenant, Aemilius Lepidus, and Italy in command of Mark Antony. Caesar was still at Massilia when he learned that the people of Rome had proclaimed him dictator. Financial troubles in the city had made this step necessary. Public credit was shaken. Debts had not been paid since the civil war began, caesar allowed himself only eleven days in rome in this time estimates were drawn of all debts as they were one year before the interest was remitted and the principal declared still due this measure relieved the debtors somewhat it was now nearly a year since caesar crossed the rubicon Pompey, during the nine months that had elapsed since his escape from Brundisium, had been collecting his forces in Epirus. Here had gathered many princes from the east, a majority of the senatorial families of Rome, Cato and Cicero, the vanquished Afranius, and the renegade Labianus. There were nine full legions with cavalry and auxiliaries, amounting in all to a hundred thousand men caesar reached brundisium at the end of the year forty nine his forces were fewer in number than those of his adversary amounting to not more than fifteen thousand infantry and six hundred cavalry but his legionaries were all veterans inured to toil and hunger to heat and cold and every man was devoted to his leader on the fourth of january he set sail from brundisium landing after an uneventful voyage at Acroteronia. advanced at once towards Dyrrhachium, where were pompey's headquarters occupied apollonia and entrenched himself on the left bank of the river apsis the country was well disposed and furnished him with ample supplies caesar sent back the vessels on which he crossed to transport his remaining troops but they were intercepted on their way across and many of them destroyed he was therefore compelled to confine himself to trifling operations until his lieutenant mark Antony, could fit out a second fleet and bring over the remainder of his legions when anthony finally crossed he landed a hundred miles up the coast Pompey's forces were between him and Caesar, and his position was full of danger. But Caesar marched rapidly round Dyrrachium and joined him before Pompey knew of his movements. The great general was now ready for action. He built a line of strongly fortified forts around Pompey's camp, blockading him by land. He turned the streams of water aside, causing as much inconvenience as possible to the enemy. So the siege dragged on into June. Two deserters informed Pompey of a weak spot in Caesar's line. At this point, Pompey made a sudden attack, for once Caesar's troops were surprised and panic-stricken. Even his own presence did not cause them to rally. Nearly a thousand of his men fell, thirty-two standards, and a few hundred soldiers were captured. This victory was the ruin of Pompey's cause. Its importance was exaggerated. His followers were sure that the war was practically over, and so certain were they of ultimate success that they neglected to follow up the advantage gained and gave Caesar opportunity to recover from the blow. The latter now retired from the seaboard into Thessaly. Pompey followed, confident of victory. The nobles in his camp amused themselves with quarreling about the expected spoils of war. Cato and Cicero remained behind in Epirus, the former disgusted at the actions of the degenerate nobility, the latter pleading ill help the two armies encamped on a plain in thessaly near the river Inipius, only four miles apart between them lay a low hill called Pharsalus, which gave name to the battle which followed the battle of phasalia august ninth forty eight has acquired a special place in history because it was fought by the roman aristocracy in their own persons in defence of their own supremacy senators and the sons of senators the heirs of the names and fortunes of the ancient roman families the leaders of society in roman salons and the chiefs of the political party of the optimates the aristocracy were here present on the field the other great actions were fought by the ignoble multitude whose deaths were of less significance plains of Pharsalia were watered by the precious blood of the elect of the earth. For several days the armies watched each other without decisive action. One morning, toward the end of May, August 9, old style, Caesar noticed a movement in Pompey's lines that told him the expected attack was coming. The position of the senatorial army was well taken. Its right wing rested on the Its left was spread out on the plain. Pompey himself commanded the left with the two legions the Senate had taken from Caesar. Outside him on the plain were his allies, covered by the cavalry. Opposite Pompey was Caesar with the famous Tenth Legion. His left and center were led by his fateful tribunes Mark Antony and Crassius Longinus at the given signal caesar's front ranks advanced on a run threw their darts drew their swords and closed in at once pompey's cavalry charged outflanking the enemy's right wing and driving back the opposing cavalry who were inferior in numbers but as they advanced flushed with victory caesar's fourth line which he had held in reserve and which was made up of the flower of his legions appeared in their way so fierce was their attack that the Pompeians wavered turned and fled they never rallied the fourth line threw themselves upon pompey's left wing which was now unprotected this wing composed of caesar's old veterans was probably in no mood to fight its former comrades in arms at any rate it turned and fled pompey himself mounted his horse and rode off in despair thus the battle ended in a rout but two hundred of caesar's men fell while fifteen thousand of the enemy lay dead on the field the abandoned camp was a remarkable sight the luxurious patricians had built houses of turf with ivy trained over the entrances to protect their delicate skins from the sun's rays couches were stretched out ready for them to take repose after their expected victory and tables were spread with dainty food and wines on which to feast as he saw these preparations caesar exclaimed these are the men who accused my suffering patient army which needed the common necessaries of life of dissoluteness and profligacy end of quote. But Caesar could not delay, leaving a portion of his forces in camp. By rapid marching, he cut off the retreat of the enemy. 24,000 surrendered, all of whom were pardoned. Domitius, whom we saw at Confinium and Marsilia, was killed, trying to escape. Labienus, Afranius, and Petrius managed to steal away by night. Thus ended the battle of Pharsalia. End of chapter 32